Kyle. Yeah. We are in chapter 2, and um, he talked about the great power of God in raising Jesus from the dead, and uh, some of what he did in that. He raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, in the exalted position. And now he's focusing on what God has done for us in Christ, and uh, that's an interesting thing to see in parallel. So I think it might be good for us to go ahead and read the first ten verses of chapter two. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by this grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We appreciate God's deliverance so much more when we see our grave need for it. And so he describes the condition of man without God. How were we? Dead. Dead because of what? Sin kills us. Sin kills everything. Sin kills people. Sin kills innocence. Sin kills ideals. Every time you sin makes the next sin easier. Sin kills the will. First you want to sin. Then you have to sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked was not just that we had messed up once or twice. It was a lot worse than that. We walked in those. They were the very atmosphere of our life. According to the course of this world. So what was it that controlled our actions? world around us, then the devil, and then our lusts. You see that in verses 2 and 3. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Now, you, you put that together, we'll separate it in a minute, but you put that together, there were three controlling influences. The world, the sinful environment, Satan, the powerful opponent, and the flesh, our own desire to do evil. And those three things did a number on us. We were just controlled by those elements. Now, 
There's a you and we here also. The you and one and two among them, we too. I personally am still most comfortable taking this, the Gentiles in verses 1 and 2 and the Jews in verse 3. But all the same options are available that were available earlier on the uh, you and the we, so you can consider those as well. Um, are you saying the, the we is in verse 3? The Jews. But the option exists that the we is the apostles, or the we are those who are writing. Um, but that's so much. I mean, for all of us. Isn't that what, what we live for? Isn't that the plight we were in? Following the longings and the impulses of a self-centered life? Just, just horrible. It's kind of interesting to look at this. Do you see the parallels between the sinful life and God's life? For example... In verse 2, you have the spirit that's working in the sense of disobedience. You have the spirit that was working in chapter 1 on the Lord's side. You have um, the sons of disobedience, verses 1-5, our adoption as sons, but a much greater, higher sonship. You have this working in verse 2, versus the working of God's might in one nineteen. So what the devil did basically rivals what God has done. It was just a horrible situation that, that you and we were in. Comments and thoughts on, on this horrible condition in 1 through 3.
Alright, uh, so, wow, what a contrast. But God, in verse 4, just, just totally inverts the situation. You know, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, he really emphasizes by grace, by grace, by God's mercy. It was something that we did not deserve. It was by God's favor. It was what he chose to do for us. And it, it reversed everything. We were dead and now we are. We were following the course of this world and now where are we? With Christ, exactly. We were under God's wrath and now we are recipients of God's grace. A whole new situation. By His grace, He inverted all of this. And really, this looks like chapter 1. Did you see that? He, We were dead. And then look at 120. He raised him from the dead. Look at 2.6. He raised us up with him. In 1.20, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In 2.6, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. You know, he speaks in the end of 21 about the age to come. And in verse 7, 2.7, so that in the ages to come, he might show. So, we are joined with Jesus as he was raised and seated in the heavenly places, so we have joined with him in that. Isn't that amazing? Now, what was the purpose of that, verse 7? was for God to display his grace to showcase his glorious mercy millionaires display their mansions their cars their jewels God displays for the ages to come the riches of his That's why he did this. That's just amazing. And we'll be on display as the product of God's grace for all the ages. This really shows God's most wonderful characteristics, his mercy and love. What a shame if we who are the recipients of that mercy and love do not are not overwhelmed with praise and appreciation and thanks and and admiration for the abundance of God's grace. We were hopeless. You were hopeless. And only God's mercy intervened and brought us up from the dead. Comments.
of something that's so incredible. The church is the masterpiece of God's goodness. That's amazing. We, we, we are the, the, the result of his incredible wisdom, his unbelievable power, and his wonderful grace. We sing that song, Our God is an Awesome God. How does it go, Our God is an Awesome God? With wisdom, power, and love. That's what you really see right here. Wow. Incredible wisdom, power, and love. All joined together in this wonderful plan and displayed by the result in what he's done for us. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so he kind of sums that up in 8 and 9. We have been saved by what? By grace. Now, he wants to make sure we get this. It's, it's of course, through our faith. But it is not our own achievement. We can claim no credit at all for our being received back to God. It is a gift of God. It is not because we have earned it by our goodness or somehow managed to conquer it by our strength. We have received it as a gift by His our faith reaches up to receive it. So, uh, yeah, there's no idea of, of penitence here or making up for things you do on the weekends. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I hear people say that. I'm thinking of, of talking with a, a, a friend of mine who is really trying to overcome some, some sins. He's a Christian. And uh, I remember talking to him, and he'd, he'd fallen into a sin that had trapped him for a while. And he'd fallen again, and he's like, man, I've really got to do good. I've really got to make up for this now. Like, no. Stop right there. That's not possible. You can't make up for it. And furthermore, you don't need to make up God's forgiven you. If you've turned to him humbly and repented, he's wiped that away. There's no way. Now, you ought to be overwhelmed with thankfulness and love and appreciation. And you ought to seek to glorify God even more for his grace. But not thinking that, well, I have to make up for it. I need to do so much better now because of how bad I did to kind of offset that. That's not possible. Thank God it's not necessary. Really powerful. He says, for we are his workmanship. And what he means by that is we are God's masterpiece. We're his work of art. We are the highest expression of, of, of God's gracious work. What he's done in us shows off better than anything. His great grace and mercy. We're His workmanship. That's just amazing. 
and he's given us a, a life to live, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. You know, sometimes people miss what God was trying to do. They short, short, short change things. You know, they think God's only purpose was just to get us forgiven, to get us saved. And once we get that, oh, now we're okay. But God was not willing to stop with just that. God wanted so much more for us. His purpose includes not just our initial salvation, but our whole life. He's mapped out the course of life to live in his grace and favor. The new Lifestyle is a part of God's plan for us. He didn't die just to save us, but to transform us. To make something out of us. To create us as new people for good works, walking in His way. You don't want to mess up God's masterpiece. Comments and thoughts. I just remind you of First uh, Colossians chapter 3. It says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, Above where Christ sits, he at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's what we need to do. Amen.
generation without Christ, it makes you appreciate so much more what he has done. So he goes back to where they were. They were Gentiles. They'd be an indication that the church is primarily Gentile. They were Gentiles, the uncircumcision, separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope without God in the world. They were in a desperate situation with no meaning, hope, or purpose. They were without God. They were without They were without anything. You know, they were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. What a difference between being in the world and being in Christ Jesus. And so they were in terrible shape, just as we were. Without Christ, look at where we would have been where we were before we came into Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a complete reversal of that picture. And he's brought us peace. You know, in verse 14 and 15, he, he made both groups into one, breaking down the barrier and the dividing wall, abolishing the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Peace is a part of God's purpose for us. It's interesting that peace is used, that word is used, in every New Testament book except one. First time. But all the others. <laughs> thought somebody might know. Um, but here, he removes the barrier that separated between Jew and Gentile. And I think he's talking about the law of Moses. That he took that law out of the way, the barrier, and along with it, the animosity, the enmity, and he reconciles the Jew and Gentile together, not by sort of welding them together, but by melting them down and creating one new man, sort of like taking a statue of silver and a statue of lead and melting them down and making a statue of gold. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he doesn't just merge them, he, make, he creates a new man. One unified people that is not Jewish, that is not Gentile. It is a new man. It transcends those categories. It's, it's, it's in Christ. And he reconciles them both in one body to God through the cross. So there's peace between us and there's peace with God because he's reconciled us. He's, he's taken away that barrier, the enmity, the sin that separated between us and God. And now we have our access in one spirit to, through the, to the Father. Interesting, in verse 18, you have the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all, all together. Through Him, Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So we are joined back to God. We have peace with God. We have peace with each other all through the work of Jesus. Just amazing what He's done. Where we were and what we've received. Comments and questions.
other thoughts, questions, So he summarizes to some extent in verses 19 to 22. Our 
founding fathers were founding fathers. You know, the apostles and prophets we have are where God put them in the foundation of the church. We shouldn't expect that we have a new set every generation. We build upon what they have done for us. So I think this passage is helpful in seeing that. You know, we are built upon what the apostles and prophets have revealed. What kind of a building are we, anyhow? Yes, we're a temple. That is, we're the place where God dwells. A temple is a dwelling place of God. Now, this is a dynamic thing. Notice he says in verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It seems to me that we grow to become more and more the people in whom God dwells. God can dwell in us more and more as we live in him, as we submit to him, as we seek him, as we are perfected in holiness and righteousness. And, and this is a collective thing. We, we together grow to be more and more the place where God dwells and where he lives. Comments and questions? Jason? I remember hearing this a lesson a while back. I thought it was very applicable, applicable to what we're talking about here. Um, just when you consider all these great landmarks and temples that we see built today and how they do nothing but deteriorate and become ruins, when we picture the temple that God is building as it grows, it's the complete opposite. God brought ruins, started with ruins, and made out of those ruins a glorious temple. Yes. Yes. That's just amazing. And he continues to build. And we continue to grow. Other thoughts? It goes back to the whole passage a lot of people misunderstand. But the idea of, upon this rock I will build my church. What if I ask you the question, when was it that God built his church? How would you answer that? Yeah. Can't give a date. It's a continuing process. Because building his church means bringing people to him. And we are still being brought to him. He's still building his might build a herd buying an animal at a time. Alright, anything else on chapter 2? Chapter 3 focuses at least a little bit more on Paul's role in this. And again, we've got quite a sentence here. A lot of ideas. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. I was made a minister 
me like Paul begins something in verse 1, digresses and comes back to it in verse 14. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he comes back in 14, for this reason I bow my knees. He, was, he says he's a prisoner of Christ. Who would we have thought he was the prisoner of? Rome. But for him, he's not Rome's prisoner, he's Christ. Everything he is is Christ. He belongs to Christ. He was in prison because he taught that the Gentiles had the same access to God that the Jews did. And that's how he ended up in prison. Remember back there in Acts 21. The controversy with the Jews was all because of that. If he had taught Gentiles could be saved by becoming Jewish proselytes, none of this would have ever happened. But because he was teaching that the Gentiles have equal access to God without becoming Jews, all of this controversy was stirred up that led him to languish in prison for a number of years, though he made it something other than languish. He says, that's why I'm here. If, if you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Paul sees this being entrusted with this great gospel message of grace as a stewardship, as a, as a trust God has given him. And uh, he's so thrilled to have this opportunity to reveal this message to them. This is a message that had been a mystery. How did Paul find out the meaning of the mystery? It was revealed to him. That's how he found it out. He didn't discover it by natural means. Somebody else didn't tell him. But uh, the Lord revealed to him this mystery, and he wrote it so that they could read it and understand it. The, the gospel mystery is now accessible. We can read what Paul wrote and we can know what he knew. So that's our means of understanding this revelation. It's a revelation that was not made known in other generations as it has been revealed now to his holy apostles, prophets, and the Spirit. I think that as means that it had not been revealed so clearly before. Did, did they know anything about this before Paul? Christ. Okay? Yes, certainly. There were promises, there were prophecies, there were shadows and types and all that sort of thing. But it was still in great measure a mystery. It had not been nearly so clearly revealed and so fully developed as now Paul has received the revelation to transmit to them. And so you sort of see a chain here. It was God through Christ, through the Spirit, through the apostles and prophets, through what they wrote that gave something we could read and understand God's revelation. Do you have comments and questions through verse 5? You know, knowing what we know now, when we look back at the Old Testament and all these <coughs> verses that talk about the Gentiles being part of the future covenant of this future promise that God was giving, it's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, it's, that, I, don't know, I don't know why they didn't understand those, all these prophecies, but, you know, as a Jew reading those prophecies, I, I'd be confused. Yeah, <laughs> it was not fully clarified. There was a lot said, 
but it was still partially covered and unrevealed. That was God's design. God revealed the message progressively, a step at a time, and the fullness of the revelation only came in Christ. That's the way God intended it to be. And the revelation is, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That total fellowship, that total equality of Jew and Gentile, and the fact that that comes through Christ, that's the revelation that was not fully understood by previous generations because it had not fully been revealed. And here Paul is, who's received the blessing of this ministry of being given the opportunity to reveal and to write this for us. What a blessing. Paul is so appreciative of the role God gave him he was a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power Paul sees what he can do as a manifestation of God's grace and power working in him he was the very least of all the saints but he was given the grace to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ Paul sees himself really he invents a grammatical error here. He sees himself as the leaster of the saints, trying to emphasize the fact he is he sees himself as being so nothing. That humility is an essential qualification to be able to serve. But he realizes that, and yet he was given the grace of preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. There is no way to plumb the depths of God's riches. They are infinite. They are just so great. And he has the chance to preach them. Paul is so amazed at the grace God has given him to be able to reveal this message. John? makes it even more amazing in showing the glory of God is Paul was, has the honor of taking the message to the Gentiles and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he was as pure, as purely Jewish as he gets. Isn't that amazing? through the 
the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now he doesn't mean by this, as a few people have taken it, that the church preaches to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I don't think we could get to and preach to them. He's saying the church is the, it displays God's wisdom. We, again, we are his masterpiece. We showcase the wisdom of God in what he's done for us, in what he's made of us, in his ability to, to cleanse us from our sins, to transform us and to make us the product of his grace. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places see God's manifold wisdom. For God's university for the angels or maybe for the wicked powers as well and again the ultimate goal of all this transcends us it's to demonstrate God's wisdom to the celestial world according to the eternal purpose so we go back to this idea this is a purpose he's had before he ever made us before he ever created the world now it's come to fruition. It's being revealed to us. Isn't that amazing? And Paul was able to reveal this and to write it write for us. He's just overwhelmed by that. And we are the objects of the purpose and plan of God. Something you might think about sometime, if you want to just sort of stretch your mind to appreciate the blessings we think about passages say in the last third of Isaiah or in Jeremiah and other prophets that were looking forward to the coming of Christ just wow such awesome descriptions of what it was going to be like what they could look forward to imagine being a Jew when Isaiah wrote and seeing those wonderful longing for it and, and just dreaming about this wonderful era that God was going to bring of great joy and grace and peace and comfort and, and the prophets even who wrote this according to 1 Peter 1 they, they tried to find out when this was and what all it was about he said even the angels were longing to peer into it Some mindless 
This all has been quite something to think about. And he says in then in verse 12, In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Through Jesus, all the barriers have been removed and we can come into God's presence. And so he says, I ask you not to lose heart of my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul had been in prison for preaching Gentile equality, but don't get discouraged about that. Don't be too distressed about it. This is nothing compared to the great blessing of being able to preach what Paul was able to preach. Who cares if they kill us for the cause of Christ? We're Christ's. And we are worried that somebody's going to laugh at us or look down at us or kind of exclude us or reject us. <laughs> wow.
power through his spirit in the inner man. Now that's quite something to say in and of itself. Because when he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, he's saying on that measure, on a scale commensurate with his glory, that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. If he gave you that much power, on a scale equal to the riches of his glory, wow, how much power would you have in your inner man? He wants them to have inner strength. He wants them to be strengthened with power. We we say, I'm just so weak, you know. You know, I just have a hard time. I just, you know, I mean, I'm just human. And I just fall all the time. And, you know, it's just, it's just hard. Well, pray to be strengthened with his power in the inner man in proportion to the riches of his glory. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's quite a goal. To be strengthened with power so that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ can dwell. What does the word dwell mean? Make a habitation. Absolutely. Settle down in and take up your boat in. He's, he's asking for them to be strengthened with power so that Christ can make a home in their hearts. Now, if Christ lives in us, then we think about him all the time. Then he, he permeates our being. We, we look at people and things the same way he does. We want to please him. He's asking for Christ, through faith, to become the dominating factor in our lives. Now, he won't barge in unwanted. So it's through faith. But if we're willing to allow him, God's able to strengthen us, strengthen us with the power to allow Christ to live in us. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, there's a lot to comprehend, what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He really wants us to know and understand the dimensions of the love of Christ. He wants us to know the love which surpasses knowledge. He really, there's so much in this that he wants us to see and understand and know and appreciate. And, and, and wow, this is just incredible. To, to, to really be able to comprehend this great knowledge of Christ, this great love of Christ, he speaks of it in these dimensions. I don't know if I should do this, but it seems to me like it's it's perhaps appropriate to think of these terms. The breadth of the love of Christ. How broad is it? What does it encompass? Or even more, chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, summing up all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. <laughs> I mean, it, it encompasses the whole world and more. The length, how long is the love of Christ? Yes. And he said that several times in here. Um, you know... And then the height, 
how high does the love of Christ bring us? To the heavens with Christ. The depth, how low will it reach? And, and into those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and hopeless without God in the world and so forth and so on. So you can think about the breadth and length and height and depth. And maybe, maybe that helps you just break down and, and think through the love of Christ a little bit more. But 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 really, even even at all that, it surpasses knowledge just beyond this. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You know, he wants God to fill us up. Wow. That that is an incredible prayer. I mean, wow. You ever prayed that? And and you think about can you imagine praying that? That seems a little uh, bold, don't you think? <laughs> to ask that? All that? Well, it's not. Because, verse 20, to him is, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Well, that's nothing. <laughs> I, I, You know, you can go through this and say he's able to do what we ask. No, he's able to do all that we ask. No, beyond all that we ask. No, abundantly beyond all that we ask. No, more abundantly. Be, no, far more abundantly. No, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He just put a lot into there. Now, that for, far more abundantly is just breaking down different prepositions of a big word. But it was an incredible word there. And he said, you can't even dream. It's beyond your wildest imagination. The power God has that works in us. There's no limit to the power He has that works in us. I'm just, you know, amazed by how little we believe this. Because we ask so little and pray so infrequently. We have not because we ask not. If you I believe you would do more than rattle off a jingle for your food and accompany some memorized prayers at church. You know, if we believed this, wow, would we not be asking? And for things so much deeper and more profound. And surely, verse 21 is appropriate. <laughs> After all of this, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Does he ever deserve that? You know, it's hard to imagine being inspired even to write something as incredible as Ephesians 1 to 3. That is amazing. And, wow, you go through that and you try to teach through a little bit of that realize we don't know anything. We are so small. And, 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 you know, everything we say is messing it up, not helping it. Comments and questions?
house is so empty by comparison. Yeah, that's a good point. We want to have a full life. Is to be with Christ in us. Other thoughts and comments? beginning of chapter 4. We won't do too much here and then we'll take a break to eat, but let's go ahead and take advantage of our time for a few more minutes. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent transition with this therefore into a section talking about how we should respond to what God has done for us. There's a lot of things we could say to introduce this, but I want you to notice something. Notice the comparison between 4-1 and 3-1. What do you see that it has in common? That's one thing. What else? The prisoner of who? Christ Jesus in three. Lord in four. That's an interesting change. And it corresponds with the book. Um, I don't have a statistic on this, but Paul uses Christ more in one through three than he does in four through six. But he uses Lord 20 times in 4 through 6 and just 6 in 1 through 3. Doesn't Lord fit more with the application section and Christ fit more with the section revealing what God's done for us? There are 41 imperatives in Ephesians. You know what an imperative is? A command form. 40 of those are in 4 through 6. Don't ask me where the one is and one the three. I don't remember. But, but so, you know, this. We, we are now looking at how we should respond. But you said 41 is what? Imperative. Do you know what an imperative is? You said what was it? 40 uh, imperative verbs in 4 through 6 and one imperative verb in 1 to 3. You know what an imperative is? It's a command form of the verb. Like go. Like be. Like do, you know, an ordering form, as opposed to the indicative form or whatever else. I don't, that's about exhausting my uh, English grammar. <laughs> so, here's what we ought to do: walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. That's a challenge when you consider the calling we've been called with. To walk in a way that matches that. That's what he's asking us to do. Not the walk you saw in the beginning of chapter 2. But now in a walk that fits 
what we profess. And in verses 2 and 3, with certain attitudes, all humility. Not pride, but all humility. Recognizing our neediness and gentleness, patience, tolerance, love. We are to treat each other right with kindness and long-suffering and tenderness and that unites us together, being diligent, really working hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God has united us. Now we've got to live in a united way, and that requires character qualities on our part. Now, you know, it's a shame. Sometimes the people can be very bold in defending the truth of the gospel, but very lax in living. There should be our our practice should match our profession. There is no excuse for somebody eloquently preaching the grace of God and living in a proud, rude, selfish way. We've got to be effective by what we preach in our character, in our attitude, in our heart. And we're going to be able to work together. We're going to be able to unite together because we have these unselfish attitudes. Now it's going to take more than attitude, obviously, because there is there are some objective facts that unite us. One body, one spirit, and the one hope, the common destination that unites us. We submit to one Lord, one authority. We have one faith, one uh, belief, one uh, truth that we follow, one baptism that we've submitted to, and one God who's over all. These, the, these things that we share in common objectively unite us, and we should have the attitudes then in verses 2 and 3 that complement that, that subjectively unite. Obviously, we don't have the one Lord in common or the one faith or the one hope. We do not have unity. Jesus came to divide those with the one Lord from others who follow other things. But if we submit to the one Lord, we should be diligently pursuing the unity and the humility and meekness and long-suffering that God wants. Comments and questions? Other comments, questions, thoughts? 
right, I think this is probably the time we need to uh, stop and take a break. Um, we'll probably have to uh, prepare for this a little bit, but there's some leftovers that we're going to eat, perhaps with the ladies going first so that then the men can uh, clean up what's left over. But uh, we'll do that at a